Hello, friends. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon, the place to be if you want to navigate bullshit and sidestep burnout. As always, I'm your host and your salonier, Kara Snyder, channeling my 18th century salon vibes where women learned in this really social and sometimes radical way. Today, we're going to take on persistence, pluck, and playwriting for social change. And let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Dipti Mehta is an Indian-American actress best known for her portrayal of Reina in Life Camera Action, which brought her multiple international awards and nominations. Dipti believes in theater as a powerful lever for social transformation. From that place, she created Honor, Confessions of a Mumbai Courtesan, which we'll talk about in this episode. Honor has given Dipti a powerful platform to advocate for women's rights and engage others on wide-ranging issues pertaining to inequity and gender. That's just the creative side of where Dipti dwells. On the scientific side, Dipti has a doctorate in molecular and cellular biology and worked as a research scientist in the field of prostate cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for 10 years. All of that to say, Dipti is this plucky, energetic force of nature, and persistently walks her creative talk in so many different ways. Voila, meet Dipti. So, playwright, performer, PhD in molecular and cellular biology. I think we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about today, but it seems like from my research, you got bit by the acting bug quite young. How did you get into acting? It was quite, you know, by chance. Um, Just like most kids find their way into arts in school, I was cast in a school play when I was about six years old, I think. You know, being on stage felt like really amazing. It felt like I was home and I was a very talkative child in a very patriarchal family. So (laughs) they did not really, you know, much conversation happening from a little girl, you know. So I was always being shut down. Like I was always being asked to be quiet and not interrupt and this and that. So when I was on stage, nobody was asking me to not talk. And I remember correctly, the other kids were having like this whole stage fright thing. And I was just like, are you kidding me? This is where I want to live for the rest of my life. So (laughs) yeah, I just quite early. So were your parents really excited that you were like getting your talk on somewhere else? Um, no. (laughs) I think for a while it was fine because I was a kid and, you know, they were really like proud and they would come to the school plays and... I also remember when I was in eighth grade, there was a play which um, where I was cast as this uh, kid who goes with a brother on a train ride with an uncle. And both of these kids are giving the uncle a really rough time. And at one point, I'm supposed to bite my brother. And I actually bit my classmate. <laughs> I was so into it. So I do remember getting yelled at for that. But <laughs> How method of you that early. (laughs) I didn't know I was doing method until like many years after, but yeah. Oh my gosh. So you loved it. Like I just pictured this little girl, like who's like a ball of energy and a ball of words coming at you. It was so exciting. And the thing is very early on when, when rehearsals would happen, I would be like listening to everybody's lines. So I would remember the whole play. (laughs) 
So if somebody forgot the line, I would be sitting in the back. Like even during the rehearsals, I'd be sitting like, you know, right behind somewhere in a corner. And if somebody forgot their line, I'd be giving them the line. And the director would be like, you remember the whole play? And so on stage, what would happen is if my fellow actors forgot their lines, I would like try and uh, tweak their line and say it in a way that they get their line, but it doesn't feel like it's their line. So I think I started to do that very early on as well. So for instance, if the line was like, today we're going to go shopping uh, with Uncle whatever, Joe, then I would say like, don't you think we should maybe go shopping? But who will take us? So then they get like a prompt to come up with like, oh, maybe we can go with Uncle Joe, you know? So I would do things like that um, early on. And it's just, it was so much fun to, you know, have, there's also, there's also this excitement, right? Everything is happening live. There's no backups. On stage, like on TV, camera, on radio, everywhere you can have like a backup. Like, you know, you can be like, oh, I can redo this. But on stage, once the curtain goes up, that's it. So that excitement of moment by moment, I mean, I have so many examples of things that happened on stage, which are so exciting. So I think, yeah, it it was so much fun. I hear you say that on a podcast that's recorded and edited. (laughs) And I think that's the thing about acting that Mm -hmm. feels terrifying to me. As someone who's a problem solver by nature, I feel like I would not be able to not see like everything that's going wrong and not be trying to dive in and fix it. It sounds like you might have a little bit of that in you if you were nudging your classmates' lines. (laughs) I think everybody has a different kind of fear, right? Like I have my own fears and there are things that I don't think I could ever do. But this one thing I know I can do really well. (laughs) And And I don't say it with any kind of pride or ego. I just know this. This is one thing that I have honed and put my 10,000 hours in. So it's not just about being good at something. Like when you're a kid and you're discovering things like, you know, you're fine. But there's also discipline and there's also the commitment to the work. So I feel like I I definitely have done that. And that gives me a certain amount of uh, confidence and an edge when I am on stage or you know, when I'm on camera, TV, I'm continuously learning and growing. So, so that's, this is one place where I feel comfortable. There are, there are still things that are terrifying. I mean, to be very honest, just before I go on stage, that one minute before I'm stepping on stage, especially when I'm doing my own work. So my own play that I've written, it is terrifying because now you're putting yourself out there, but you're also saying things that you wrote So you're putting yourself out there for judgment as a writer and an actor performer, you know? So that can be quite terrifying. So before I go on stage, I have a whole ritual. Like I worship the stage and I like, you know, touch my third eye to the stage and I like ask the stage to keep my honor. (laughs) Be like, please don't, don't embarrass me today. Be with me. (laughs) So, but, but in terms of once I'm on stage, once I start my work, all that fear just like evaporates. It's gone. Then it's just playtime. I can, I can resonate with what you're talking about. I feel like when I do any like public speaking, it's like I'm excited when I'm driving there. I'm like, okay, this is excitement. Bodies can't tell the difference between excitement and straight up fear. It all sort of feels the same. Bodies get confused. Okay. And I feel like I'm, I'm mostly in check. And then there's about a five to 10 minute window before I get on stage or before I'm introduced 
where I just want to hide in the bathroom, just like literally mm-hmm. taking deep breaths. And it's like, okay, everything's yeah. all right. I'm going to live to tell. This is going to feel so good. Like yeah. once I'm finished, yeah. you know, hopefully there's a meeting of the minds, you know, like all <laughs> of that sort of self-talk. Yeah. And then as soon as you start, it's like you get about 10 words in and you're like, ah, yeah, I okay, know. we're rolling. Yeah, yeah, this is fine. These are just people. They all put their pants on one leg at a time too. Yeah, exactly. And the best thing to do is like imagine them in the shower or, you know, things like that. If you feel a little more nervous. <laughs> For, after years of listening to women talk about everything from what's stressing them out at work to their bowel movements, I think at this point, mm-hmm. I always think everybody poops. Everybody, like at least probably once a day or every few days, if they're unfortunate. Um, <laughs> no, I was actually everyone poops. <laughs> I was going to say, imagine a person on the toilet bowl. Everybody <laughs> has to do that. So, there's no dignity, and we still like that, you know. But then I was like, okay, it's 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 podcast. I should be like polite. So I said, shout. <laughs> but now, oh like, no, no, you can be as impolite <laughs> as you want on this show. <laughs> We're all for candid conversation here. Thank you. I shall do that. (laughs) So Dipti, tell us a little more about your one-woman show. So my one-woman play is called Honor Confessions of a Mumbai Courtesan. And if I am completely honest, I started writing this play in 2010 for one and only one reason, which was to be able to work as an actor in New York. Because uh, when I came here in 2009... I quickly realized that diversity conversation was still not in place and there was no place for uh, brown colored folks like me who speak like me, who look like me. There wasn't a specific box other than Indian. Uh, But then my Indian accent wasn't quite the Indian accent they were used to either. So it was kind of like, who, who, how do we use this actor, you know? And people don't worry about that when you are not a known name. <laughs> so mm-hmm. nobody actually said, how do we use this actor? I was just like, what do I do? Um, and when I was in India, I was a working actor. I was quite busy. So it was quite challenging for a while to just sit around and wait for something to happen. And if I was going to write a show, it was going to be about women's issues. That's something that has always been the case for me uh, since I was very, very young. Uh, my first piece that I wrote was for All India Radio as a guest artist when I was 13 years old. And it was about um, oppression of women in a culture which worships goddesses, but really mistreats their own wives and daughters and sisters. So um, I had always been a feminist and women's issues are very close to my heart. And prostitutes were always something that mystified me and challenged my thinking because on one side, everything I knew from my environment was telling me these are dirty women. But on another side, my mind was just not okay with that because I had seen patriarchs behaving the way they did with women. And I was like, why aren't these men dirty? Because that's just, this thing doesn't work because if these women are dirty, okay, fine. Why aren't the men dirty who go to them? Um, yeah, what is, what is the cultural shower that they're stepping through? Exactly. Right? So, so I wanted to write about that world, but I also wanted to take out the stigma. And so I started creating a show about just a mother and a daughter who just happened to be in a red light district of Mumbai. So the mother was trafficked and has become a prostitute and had a child. And this child has now come of age. And so it's a story about these two. At the heart of the play, that's what it is. 
And then um, over the years, I kept rewriting it and adding characters and taking them out and things like that. And finally, in 2016, I thought the script started to arrive. And finally, last year, I think it's completely arrived. Um, but I started touring with the show in 2016. Um, and during this whole process, I also started to come across uh, women who were probably trafficked or sometime at some point, and they would write letters to me about their experiences. Uh, I shouldn't say probably trafficked, they were trafficked, or they had um, experiences where they were prostituted for a while, or, or their mother was in the business. Um, and it was starting to become this thing that was bigger than just my desire to be seen as an actor. So I started to get... Um, connected with nonprofits and things like that, individuals uh, from red light districts. And then I started to get more and more um, resources to develop the uh, script more. So um, it is kind of informed from the truth, except it is completely fictional. Uh, but I have had women from the red light district see the show and tell me that this is exactly how we talk. You know, so it's been a very rewarding experience uh, and it's still, a struggle too, um, as a brown woman from South Asia, <laughs> um, I still have to fight to get the play in, you know, in a presenter's book. Um, I go to conferences, I talk to people, I send out cold emails and 99 times out of hundred times, it's a no, it's a rejection or it's a maybe next year, maybe in 2022. And I was just like, oh, before all my head turned gray, please. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so that's the journey of the play uh, and we've been very fortunate to have won uh, awards and we are also very grateful to have had love from media um, the reviews have been pretty strong and pretty supportive of what we're doing so I'm really uh, yeah I'm really proud of the team of the show of what we've created and um, the art yeah Wow. First, congratulations. Second, wow. <laughs> Did you ever, when you were writing it, mm -hmm. think it would bring you the connections to the woman it's connected you to, to the nonprofits? Like, did you ever see that forming? No, honestly, I, uh, I don't live in the future as you know, as best as I can try, I don't. I mean, maybe when it comes to uh, relationships, I do a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one part of our lives where we feature trip, right? Uh, but when it comes to my work, I literally am just taking one step at a time and I really don't, it's kind of like a jump and I never know how high I have jumped until I actually hit something. <laughs> so, I, you know, I just go with the flow and it's like, okay, so if I want to be, uh, if I want to be acting and nobody else is casting me, okay, there are other people who are writing their own shows. Great. Let me just write my own show. So I wrote a show, which was okay. It wasn't like really great or something, but we wrote it. And I actually didn't even have the script completed when I submitted the synopsis to this festival. Um, it wasn't a very great festival, but they, they invited us to perform. And so now I had the dates for performance. So now I had to have a script. So you see, like, I, I kind of don't think what's going to happen. I just do the thing and then, oh, okay, we're in here. So it turned out two years later, like a producer was really interested in the show and she thought she was doing a reading with La Mama, which is a really beautiful historic theater in New York. Turns out La Mama had programmed us in that season. So 
she finds out that we're actually not doing a reading. And since we're already in the season, we have to put up a show. So the show grew and, you know, and then nothing happened for a while. So I kept like working at it. And I also had a child meanwhile. So, 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 you know, it wasn't ever something that I knew what, what, where it'll go. Even now, I don't know where it's going to go next. I actually have nothing right now. We finished our uh, last uh, run in Montreal in October. And then I've been doing other things. I had a comic book that came out. So, you know, now I don't know where the next step for the show is or for me is. It's just, you know, I'm just open to the universe and hopefully the universe is open to me. <laughs> As someone who's in a bit of a career transition for the last six months or so, and maybe even a little bit longer, I totally know what you mean about, okay, I'm going to make some small movements and then let's see what the universe like boomerangs back to me. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly how I am. Yeah. It's like, come on, tell me where I'm supposed to head. <laughs> yeah. How do you sit in that space? Very uncomfortably. <laughs> <laughs> I know it chafes a little, doesn't it? Um, it's very scary, right? And we have to be vulnerable and honest about it. I, I have girlfriends that I will go out with and literally just cry my heart out and be like, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen. And especially last year, I quit working nine to five. I mean, I made, made a choice. So basically, I was on a contractual position for a Fortune 500 company and the contract was over. And after that, while everyone else around me was getting new jobs, I just made an active choice of pursuing just my art and just putting all my energy into what I want to build. And so now there is no paycheck every two weeks. So that's, that's a scary place to be in and not knowing what your future is going to be. So yeah, a lot of wine, a lot of <laughs> and then you know, like affirmations, power affirmations. Let's go for a run. Let's dance. Let's go for yoga. <laughs> and just like keep building. So Yes, I feel like, and I would also add to that for me, it's um, pulling tarot cards. Like I realized, I realized, and this is probably fun, sounds funny to someone who wrote their own play. I feel like when I open a notebook to journal, sometimes Mm -hmm. just the blank page feels Mm -hmm. very daunting. Yeah. Oh, like, how do I want to go into myself and explore, Mm -hmm. like, and a lot of times when you're journaling, you're exploring like the yuck, right? You're like, okay, what am I afraid of? What's the next step? I've got to make a decision here. What, what do I do when I only know 20% of the path in front of me? What do I do when it's all fog in front of me? And I found that like even just pulling some cards and just like resonating with the images or the word on them or maybe yeah. the number – Like it allowed me to just form a question that then I could kind of go inward a little bit and it made it seem like less scary and visual and like. So you read tarot cards? I don't like, well, I'm learning how. Because you know the next thing I'm going to ask, right? Like if you have a deck next to you, come on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm actually like a total amateur and and I don't want to say hack because I think everyone thinks that they're about like, okay, this card has this meaning and if it's upside down or right side up, it means this or that or whatever and very literal. Yeah. I And for the just probably the last year or so. Yeah. Really kind of going into it where it's like, even some days I'll just like pull a card and think like, because I, everything I do in life is around questions, right? I, I'm leveraging questions constantly. 
And so sometimes it's just a matter of flipping a card out of the, the deck and just thinking, all right, what kind of energy do I need to bring into the day? And then just looking at like whatever the pretty image is on the card. And it's like, ah, my initial hit on this, I try to listen for those like first words that come out or mm-hmm. come up and like just sort of capture that. And then I sort of cheat and sometimes look up the definition of a card and kind what? of, see, all right, what is this supposed to mean? And then the the part that's really fun for me is like, what's the link between that intuitive response Mm -hmm. and kind of like what people who have played or studied tarot for years say it is? And I feel like I kind of work somewhere in the middle between those things. And I think it's it's all right. Uh, I don't think uh, there is any rules that you have to live by or follow because all of this is anyways made up. Some smart person might have made up some smart things and other people might follow it and some people might create their own rules. So I I think, yeah, I think if you think about it, we're all a little bit like of a hack. Everybody is, right? We're all just making stuff. Like my play is um, a make-believe world. Um, I'm totally lying about everything in it. There's no... (laughs) Right? Like there's no real person by that name. If you think about any of the TV film um, that we're all consuming, so much media that you're consuming, like all the novels that we love, like Gone with the Wind. Oh my God. I'm sure there was somebody like Scarlett O'Hara out there that the author was inspired by, but there was no Scarlett O'Hara per se. Right? So I think it's all good. (laughs) You can still pull tarot cards for me afterwards. (laughs) So this no rules idea, I love this. And I feel like you are a walking embodiment of that statement. Because let's be clear for the audience, Mm -hmm. the work that you left behind was the result of how many years as a PhD student and then how many years working as a scientist. I was working as a scientist for 10 years and I was in my PhD program for five and a half before that. And before that, I did my master's for two years before that. So yeah. Oh, that is so much school, Dipti. But you know, you know what's interesting about doing your PhD or working in a science is you are constantly being reminded that there are no rules that you can impose on nature. You know, you can use all of your learning and come up with a hypothesis that is so well-informed, that is so smart, right? That is so much logic and you've analyzed everything and this is the best possible way it should be. And then you do your experiments and the result comes out to be completely different. And you're completely shocked that, okay, this shouldn't have happened, but now it has. So now how do I recalibrate and move on from here? So in a way, I mean, yeah, there's discipline, but I think discipline is very different than rules. And I don't think, I had a very, very wonderful mentor. I think that's a very important thing when you're doing your PhD to have like a really good principal investigator who you're working under and who's a great mentor. He was such a wonderful scientist. And one of the few things he told our students early on is like the principle of KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep it simple and stupid, how you want it. <laughs> but, but that was one thing. Then there was one other um, wonderful scientist who I remember very early on told me that never fall in love with your hypotheses. Oh, so true. Fall in love with their idea. And then that's all they want to see. And that's all they want to, sometimes it's like a square peg that they're trying to push into a round hole and it just is not going to work. Um, so that attachment kind of was, so, you know, a lot of stuff that I learned during my PhD, like 
being okay with the no's, being okay with failures, because you are failing more than you're succeeding as a scientist. You know, and I that's mean, expected, right? I mean, it's, it's part of the training. It's like, you're going to yeah. make a thousand experiments and Maybe I don't know. Get- yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because out of those thousand, 900 are probably so that you could do that one that will give you the result that you could maybe publish. So I remember very clearly this whole year um, during my PhD, I spent this one year creating these new human cell lines. So there were basic cell lines. And then, so I, I worked with human uh, colon cancer cells. And so then I, I tweaked them to make them into something different. So that then I could do my experiment, which would then decide the, uh, my PhD thesis or dissertation. And so I spent a year creating these cells and then came time to do this big experiment, right? Did the big experiment and nope, the result was completely negative. I had to throw out all that one year's worth of work and then start again. Um, and so that's what, what was I- that like in that moment? Because to me, hearing that, all I can think is, Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. It was it was really tough. A lot of wine, a lot of tears. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was yeah, it was very hard. Like my 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 mentor would say, You need one lucky summer to graduate. And I was like, Where is my lucky summer? Like when is it going to come? And there are people who spend eight years, nine years doing their PhD. It just, you know, you just keep at it, keep at it. And that's why I always tell people, like when they say, Oh, you have a PhD, I'm like, you know, anybody can get a PhD. You just have to be patient and persistent. That is all. It might take a long time, but it's really not a separate, like any crazy um, skill set that you need to have. You need to really just have patience and persistence. That's all. You don't even have to have faith. You don't even have to trust anything because actually that won't even work because you're like, I trust this experiment. It's going to work. And then you're like, uh, no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think PhD was really great for me being a scientist. Uh, I call myself a recovering scientist and I actually have a boutique skincare company. So I still get to do my little bit of science at home when I'm making lotions and potions. So it really oh, fun. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. So I think, I think all of that training and discipline really makes you a very strong uh, human being and you're really set for life or any career, I think. So I feel like I've heard you use the word discipline and clearly you're exemplifying it. I imagine there are some things that you do that contribute to that, that other women can learn from you. When I say discipline, it's really integrity, right? Um, It's really doing what you say and saying what you do, right? So if I say, and honestly, it's a struggle. It's not like always easy. So if I say that I want to win a lottery, but I never buy a lottery ticket, then that's zero integrity with that want. So in terms of like me being an actor, my discipline is to always be perfecting my craft, but having, if I'm going to be an actor, there are certain things that I must do. My body is my instrument. My voice is my instrument. If I don't take care of these things, then that is not discipline, right? So when I say discipline, like knowing what you want and then knowing what you need to have in order to fulfill that want and then going after that with full integrity. And you can have like one day when you decide to have a cheat day, but really like working out, like I, like I said, it's a process. First of all, obviously from the training in science and all of that, like I got a lot of discipline about like really, really um, committing to something. But I discovered yoga 
when I discovered yoga, it started to give me this place to go to and make it a habit. And then it became a discipline, right? So, and then I started to learn a lot from that. My body started to teach me that everything is a process. And if you just keep working at it every day in this process, it's not a linear slope, it's exponential. One fine day, you'll wake up and you will have a skill that you were struggling with for so long. So for instance, I was working on headstand for almost three years. And then one day, suddenly in the middle of the room, I went up without needing the wall. And it was such an aha moment. And then of course it didn't happen again for a couple of months. And then it started to happen again. And now I can go up and do like a lotus position in a headstand. But that, so, what? <laughs> so three years of struggling, 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 not being able to do it, not being able to do it, not being able to do it, looking at the other women or men who do it so gracefully and make it look so easy. And, and then suddenly my body just did it. So that came from a discipline of just going at it every day, every day, not giving up. Uh, so for me, I think when I say discipline, that's what I mean. Because as you heard me talk about rules, I don't follow rules all the time, <laughs> mainly because I don't even know what the rules of the game are. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I didn't really go to a writing school or I didn't really go to an acting school per se. So I've learned everything I've learned in the school called life. When I say discipline, it's more about, okay, if I say I'm going to, if I want to do a headstand, I must practice for three years, maybe 30 years. I don't know. So just keeping at it. So that's what I really mean when I say discipline, um, to really just be a part of that process with full commitment and have hundred percent integrity in that. So I have more questions for you. Yeah. So Dipti, what I heard you say, like at a really high level, your process is being clear about what you want or like what direction you're heading, then yeah. kind of taking stock of like what resources yeah. you kind of have and need to have in place. And maybe that's skills, maybe that's energy, maybe that's people, like yeah. whatever that is. And then this commitment to taking action every day. So I want to first start with knowing what you want. And I know that I'm asking this question as you and I are in this like transitory period in our life, at least professionally. Yeah. What helps you recenter or like reconnect to the direction you want to be going in when it feels kind of nebulous? So usually it's just waking up and doing the work. My work is sacred. I trust my work completely. In fact, there are times when, you know, when young girls especially ask me what they should be doing. I tell them, worship your work because your work is sacred. Your work is something where you put in the energy and it might not feel like it's giving you anything back, but it will. I, in fact, I joke with them, like, don't put in energy in boys, put it in your work. <laughs> um, but really, my work is sacred. So fine, there is a certain amount of power that the universe has, right? Like getting the opportunities and getting, you know, getting a job. Let's say I audition for something. It's not in my hands to be able to say, okay, she's getting the part. But it is in my hands to go in the room and to do my best that day. Now, my best could not be, could be a little bit less than some other actor's best and she or he gets the part and that's fine. But for me to do my best and I can, so to understand, you know, there's that quote, right? Like, um, 
may the universe uh, help me um, change the things I can and accept the things I cannot and give me the wisdom to understand the difference or serenity to accept the things like, so, you know, there are things that are out of my control, but there are things that are in my control, which is working on my body, working on my voice, working on my um, skills as an actor, which is like, okay, if I'm on camera, how do I, you know, what's my physicality going to be like? So taking a scene and finding a buddy and, you know, teaming up and just rehearsing or, okay, I can write a new play. Uh, I can do those things. So I will still focus on things that I can do versus these things that are not in my power. So now once I have a new play, then I'll start talking about it to people, right? And then the right people will come in my path. And you know, that might take some time. Uh, my new play called Her Story, His Shadow has been ready since 2018. And we've had one reading and I keep talking about it. And now we have another reading and hopefully we'll have something else happen. But until then, I can't just keep like wallowing every morning, like, as somebody reached out to me for her story, I can keep sending out emails. I can keep doing those things, but I can also focus on creating my work. So things that are in my control, giving energy to that. And then the universe responds to what you put in your energy in, right? So. I firmly agree. I couldn't more agree. And I love that you're mentioning recognizing what you have control of and what you don't have control of. Right. And you can hemorrhage all of your energy out, fixating on things that and attaching yourself to things that you have absolutely no control of. You can never make your phone ring. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, unless you're a telekinesis or like uh, what's <laughs> hypnosis expert or something like I'm, I mean, honestly, trust me, I've looked at all those things. I'm like, can I make this happen? Can I like hypnotize a casting director and like giving me the part? <laughs> And you're thinking, why can't Eleven from Stranger Things actually be a real girl and be my friend? (laughs) She could make the phone ring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how do you sit with the unknown? Because to your point, especially with what you're talking about, like pitching a new show, like, wait, maybe you can clarify one thing for me because I don't come from the world of acting. When you say you got to read... What does that mean, like, uh, that in the means, process? Yeah, yeah. That, that just means that um, the actors will sit, uh, you know, on the stage with music stands in front of them and their scripts in front of them, they're, and they're going to read the play. So they will put emotion, they will put, you know, a little bit of truth in it as best as they can because they're not off book. They're not, there's no physical movement, maybe very small physical movements like coming in and going out kind of thing. But it's, it's essentially reading a play versus acting a play. So it's not a full production. We don't have a set. We don't have uh, anything else. It's just like there's audience and there's like actors um, sitting in chairs or sometimes standing with their music stands and their scripts and reading it. Got it. So this means it's like the words have come out of your head. They've gotten down onto paper. You have found the right people for the roles who have kind of said, I'm into this. I would want to do this if this becomes a production. Yeah. And at this point, who are you reading to? Like, who's the audience in this room? Yeah, so depending on where you're doing it, like we did a reading of it at a festival. So the festival marketed it. So whoever wants to come can come. Uh, it was a ticketed thing. Uh, the next one we have, I am not sure if it's an invited or a free event or what it is, but it can be It can be any of those. It can be a ticketed event where, you know, the ticket price will never be as high as an actual production because clearly you're coming to see a reading. And then, or you can have like a free event where public can just show up, no RSVP needed, nothing. 
or you can have an invited event. Uh, and usually that's when you are inviting producers or people you really want uh, to hear this play so that they can collaborate with you or give you money. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So this is the part where it's, it's sort of the sales part of the play. Yes. It's, you know, being able to find um, a godfather for the play. God, or hopefully a godmother in your okay, case. Yeah. Yeah, yes. <laughs> or a god person. A god day. We say god parent. I was like, well, how, what, is the, what is the third gender of a, of a, of a godlike creature? <laughs> oh, Yoda. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, we want Yoda in the audience. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> so you're really like actively now trying to get this out. So you have to have those moments where you're like, how the hell is this going to come together? I do. How do you how do you talk yourself off the ledge? More wine, more friends, yeah. or something else? I actually I do give myself permission to feel down if I am down because you know I do firmly believe what you resist persists, and yeah. that doesn't mean I don't resist stuff. I do. Many times I'll have this huge weight in my heart, like this you know this feeling of not being able to breathe, like you're so anxious and anxiety. And I just have to be with it. Like, you know, really just be like, okay, I am really sad. And I'm feeling the grief of not having uh, been born with the silver spoon in my mouth, not having had the connections. And, and sometimes I also think it's the skill set of like being able to ask for financial support, you know, as women, especially we struggle with raising money. It's not an easy thing for us to do because we're so wired, hardwired to give so we're giving so much, like we'll give our services and value and everything. But when it comes to asking for, give me like $50,000 so I can produce this work of art, it's a hard thing to do. And that's something that I'm battling with myself. So I really just like uh, be with it and I'm sad for a day or two. And then I force myself to go to my yoga class, go for a walk, uh, maybe a glass of wine with a friend. I keep myself distracted. Distraction can be magical, honestly, for anything. <laughs> And for all the women who are listening to this, like if you're going through a tough time, maybe financially, maybe work-wise, you know, in your career, maybe boyfriend-wise or maybe husband-wise or children-wise, whatever it is, um, distraction can actually shift your energy because that's something that I'm a big believer of also. And I know that when my energy, like everything is energy, right? We're, we're energetic beings. We're really vibrations. We're not solid. We think we are, but you know, that's bullshit. But we're, we're really like, vibrations. So if my energy is super low, I have to shift that energy first. So I will, you know, distract myself long enough to shift it for a while. And then maybe I'll come back and wallow a little bit more in my grief or my sadness or my anxiety. But then again, I'll distract myself. So the best way to do that is to make commitments. So for instance, like I have to fulfill some orders for hair conditioner. So I have to make it. So no matter how low I feel, about not having anything for my play and not knowing where it'll go. Uh, and all I want to really do is be depressed and lay in my bed and not get out. I have to, because I have to make this product and deliver it to someone or like, okay, fine. If you don't have a skincare business to save your life, then <laughs> maybe you can just like call somebody and say, you know, I want to go for a walk. Do you want to go for a walk at like 5 PM and just give a time, pick a place. And now you have a commitment. So, you have that much time to really be sad, but then you have to get out of your comfort zone and go somewhere else and be something else, you know, and then you shift your energy. So that's, that's, you know, I try to do that, but I'm a human being too, honestly. Um, sometimes I, I'm just depressed and I am in my bed. 
course, but, uh, it's, it's so hard. Like, I think yeah. that's the thing, you know, that I imagine the people listening to this show are pretty split between having a standard day job or yeah. being an entrepreneur or an artist and having kind of a, a loosier, goosier schedule, right? Or one that's self-made. Yeah. I think sometimes, like, especially for the people who get up and go to a job every day and get a paycheck, you know, two to four times a month on the regular and it's predictable, it's probably hard to understand because I, I think sometimes people look at when you work for yourself, like I am as a consultant or like you're doing as a, as a playwright and an actor, it's, oh, aren't they lucky? They just get to do what they want. But I think people don't often realize how challenging it can be yeah. and, and how much work you have to do on yourself. Like I know one of the big, biggest changes in driving the career change for me working with women one-on-one to moving into UX design was I didn't realize how lonely it was going to be. And like, you know, I didn't notice it at first, but it sort of built over time. Like it was sort of cumulatively building kind of in the corners, like cobwebs at first. And you're like, you know, you just dust a little and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. But I didn't realize like the longer it went on, the more like isolating it felt in a way. And like the UX design work is a way to use some of those same skills, but in a more collaborative way. Right. And like when you don't have a job, you have to find those distractions to sort of yeah. rebuild your energy and you have to be doing a lot of the self-work yeah. that you've been describing in terms of just like m- managing your own expectations is different than when a boss sort of says, hey, can you get me that thing by Friday afternoon at five? Yeah, yeah. That actually is a very important thing because most of us have such bad, such poor listenings of ourselves, right? So one thing that I learned was like, if you really want something to happen, and especially if that's, if you're your own boss, nobody else is going to give you deadlines. And if you give yourself deadlines, you're not going to take them seriously because you have such poor listening of yourself. So I don't give myself deadlines. I actually promise somebody I really care about or somebody I admire, I, do, I give a promise to them that I'm going to have this ready by so and so I, I hold myself so they can hold me accountable. Do you know what I, what I mean? So yeah. like it promises outside in someone else's listening of me. Now, if that listening got, you know, damaged, then I would, ha- I would feel bad. So that's what I de- definitely do. That way I can keep creating and keep meeting my deadlines. It's funny when you are acting for someone else in somebody else's production does that feel like almost like a vacation for you where you're like, ah, someone's just going to tell me where to go and what to do and what to say. But I think it's true for all actors. Uh, One of my acting coaches used to say that auditioning is your job. When you book it and you're on set, that's vacation. So anyways, for all actors, getting the job is the job. Um, And then once you get the job, that's like when you're on the job, that's vacation. So, and for me, for sure, Uh, And you have no idea how many times I'm just like, why can't I just focus on getting jobs for other people's production? I wouldn't have to worry about writing. I wouldn't have to worry about like rewriting 500 times. I wouldn't have to worry about thinking of the funds or the other crew people, you know, like I wouldn't have to do any of that. But then again, I would be saying someone else's words and they could be wonderful words or they could be words that I really don't care about. And then I'm just doing it for the money. Uh, Then what's the point? 
So I definitely want that, but I also want to keep creating my own stuff. And who knows, maybe after, you know, after I'm long gone, these things that we've created would still live. Like so many other artists who've been world famous or became famous after, you know, posthumously, um, they didn't know what was going to happen to their work. So we just, I just keep creating and hope that it finds its life and uh, flow hopefully in my own lifetime, but if not, at least at some point. <laughs> of course, of course. And it sounds like you are creating what seemed like unexpected change for you. I mean, like, what was it like the first time a woman who had been trafficked reached out to you? You know, it was very rewarding, actually, because the whole point of the show is to create awareness and to break stigma. And when this woman reached out to me, she actually said that the show helped her see herself in a different light and that it healed her. Like in, in her healing process, this helped her move forward. And I think it was just really rewarding to hear that. You know? I can't imagine like what you felt in your heart at that moment. It just felt really, really like rewarding and fulfilling and that, yep, I have made a difference if if this is the only person I've made a difference for, even then all this work was worth it. That's how it felt. And did it shift the work for you? Like did the play change as a result of that or did it stay the same? That's a very interesting question. I didn't think about that. I think the play is very different every single time I perform um, because, you know, even if it's the same words it, and even if it's the same stage, the audience is different. And I, I'm one of those actors who thinks that any play, especially uh, a live performance, is only as good as its audience. And so when there's a new audience, the play is anyways different and new. So I'm sure that when I know that, if I know, pre, you know in advance that there's somebody who, who's going to be in the house who's impacted by this, then it'll definitely have a different energy to it. Uh, but if I don't know, even then, the play always has a different energy every single time I perform it. And, you know, especially if it's a different town, different stage, different everything, then it's a whole different feeling of performing. So in that regard, it's changing so much all the time. And I'm rewriting it all the time too. I'm not, not so much anymore, like, you know, minor tweaks now. But I feel like at some point, you know, in, in the process somewhere, all this stuff that comes to me and subconsciously changes me and consciously as well must show up in my, in, in my work in the play. It's funny to hear you say that because I've always wondered, and maybe this is like the half of me that believes that energetically we are all interconnected, right? And like, that there's an energy in a room, there's the, the energy that people are pouring into that room, there's yeah. the energy that we're contributing to that situation. Yeah. And then the analytical part of me that I've always wondered what it would be like to see the same show like 10 nights in a row, you yeah. know, or once a week for 10 weeks or something like that to just see like, oh my God, what happens when we hear about some devastating event in the world and yeah. then like all of the actors have to come and sort of yeah. try to put themselves aside, but how do you like separate? And then what happens like if you see that over and over again, 
it's so fascinating to me. It is. It, it really is true. I remember having to perform with some terrible news happening around the world sometimes. And it's, it's scary. Like I think one time there was like a massive earthquake or something and we were performing and we were like, Oh my God. Um, you know, it's, yeah. I think even if there was no audience there and even if there were no catastrophic events that had happened and it was the same actors, even then the performance will be very new every single time because the actors are living, breathing human beings. They have their life happening. So it could be something as small as um, a beautiful time they had with their family that day or a fight that they had with their spouse. And that'll impact how they show up on stage on a subconscious level. And that will impact the whole thing. I mean, like they say, a butterfly flapping its wings in Japan can cause a hurricane in America. So, you know, small things can have big impacts. So So fascinating. One thing we haven't talked about yet is burnout. I mean, we've sort of like touched on it. I feel like there are places in your life, you know, where you were juggling a daytime job as well as trying to be an actor. I mean, even when we back way up to earlier in our conversation, growing up as this talkative little feminist in a, in a patriarchal household, in a patriarchal culture, have you ever burned out? It does happen, but not when it comes to acting and writing, because these are the two things that are my saviors, actually. So when I am dealing with anything massive in life, the pen and the stage save me but otherwise yeah like in i've had i've had burnouts in relationships you know i've been one of those people who uh like i said i i think and this is something that i'm learning now actually as we speak there's this process that i'm going through where i give too much and most of the times i like to believe that i don't expect anything in return but what starts to happen is when you're giving so much, you start to get, you know, they start, you start being taken a little bit for granted, not because somebody is doing that purposely, but because that just becomes a new norm, right? And then in terms of asking, I've been pretty bad. I just don't ask for support or anything that I need from the universe or from people around me. So, and I don't receive generously. So if somebody gives me a gift, I'd be like, oh, no, no, you don't have to, you know? So now I am trying to shift that for myself. But otherwise, like in relationships, I would... I start to feel completely burnt out because I'm just giving and giving and giving. And at some point I feel like that appreciation or the gratitude for what I'm giving is gone. So that's one place. Anything that my heart is not completely in will burn me out. Travel will have that impact on me. I love performing, but it's the, it's everything around it, you know, just traveling or air travel and things like that. It throws me off sometimes. And when all of that happens, I just have to take some time after that to really just go slow, to find my flow again. But the worst is the emotional burnout. That one can be so challenging. And it can happen with friends. It can happen with family. It can happen with your you know, husband or a boyfriend. Or So for me, my relationships can burn me out quite a bit. So I'm going through this phase right now where I am accepting more gratefully with gratitude and with, you know, love and saying, okay, I deserve to be receiving as well. And I don't need to give as much, but that also is then an inquiry within like, why am I giving so much? Is it so that I can have appreciation and validation and somebody can love me? 
so you know i think sometimes burnouts are very good because they lead you down a path of the inquiry that will be that will bring some enlightenment or some insights that will help you grow i couldn't agree more and thank you for being so open and so honest you know i always would tell my clients cuz most of the women that i worked with as a health and lifestyle strategist mm-hmm. was they were all at the point of like mega burnout. You know, I was often like like the last ditch effort, right? Like I've tried the doctor, I've tried this, I've tried that, like uh oh, what the hell, I might as well try you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like so there was just like a layer of like exhaustion and frustration. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always would kind of use the metaphor that like our bodies and our our hearts and our guts like they don't have a cell phone, right? They're not going to text us and like let us know when things are going wrong. It's mm-hmm. like we not that we need it, but sometimes some of us need it. Like I am a very stubborn, tenacious, persistent person as well. And like I had to have the universe like sit me down. You know, it got to the point where things got so bad. I was running around with irritable bowel syndrome, like running my life and literally, Dipti, I had one of those moments where I shit my pants, like racing to a, a to catch a flight. Wow. And like, I almost made it to the little bathroom in the back of the plane. But this, I remember this one woman like blocking my path. Mm. And I remember like being in there and just being like, shit, the flight attendant is banging on the door. I'm getting like yelled at that I'm holding up the plane because I won't take my seat. I'm literally like sitting in a dirty diaper, like an existential dirty diaper. And it was like, it took that moment before I was like, woman, get your shit together. Like literally in all sorts of ways. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just about like learning from that because we're all human beings and you know, we, yeah, we're creatures of the heart and the mind. And unfortunately we're social beings, so that can happen, you know, a lot of times from a lot of places. And the pressure is so much more now than it used to be for, I think, our parents' generation that we're dealing with so many things. It's a fast world. It's everything is just too much. So sometimes you just have to like zone down and then be like, okay, what do I need to do for myself? That's something that's very important too, like putting ourselves first. I mean, I want us to put the world first. That's the most important thing. And that I think the next generation is doing it really well because they, are, they understand the concept of us. But I'm saying, when, I'm, when I say putting ourselves first, I mean in terms of our spiritual and emotional health. Yeah, it is. As someone who equally is, I would say I'm getting better at asking for help. Yeah. But, and getting slightly better at receiving it. But for so long, I'm like, I don't want to be a burden. This is my own stuff. Like, I should be able to carry it. Why am I, like, having to ask someone else for help on this? And I think I, you know, it's something that I'm constantly working on, too. Like, what have you found helpful? I think I listen to a lot of, like, spiritual stuff. Listen to TED Talks a lot. I will listen to uplifting things. That definitely helps. Going to yoga definitely helps. Sometimes it's just like being with a friend and getting some warm hugs and, you know, like I said before, it's just shifting my energy. How do you recognize when it's time to shift? Because one of the things I've witnessed over the years 
yeah. is we don't get the text message, right? And then like our bodies can't give us a text message. So then like they start sending an email and when that doesn't work, they start knocking on the door, right? And when they're, you know, they're still, the, the universe is sort of knocking on the door. Like you've got a course correct. It's time. Energy is depleting. And it's like, yeah. sometimes we wait until like the universe is literally about to break our, our front window or kick in the door before we like decide, oh yeah, I've got to, I've got to change this trajectory or shift my energy a bit. What are the warning signs for you? Um, when I have the pit in my stomach for too long and I'm being obsessive about something where like that thought just doesn't want to leave my mind, it can be a person, it can be a friend, it can be uh, a job, uh, it can be anything that like you becomes an obsess obsession um, and you're just obsessively thinking about that. When that starts to happen, where I start to realize, I'm like, oh, come on, just, just, give it up already, let it go, let it rest, you know? And then I just have to like deep breathe and um, maybe go for a singing lesson or something. And I don't know, keep my phone away for a little bit, keep all the communication um, channels closed from everyone. It can be hard, but that's what basically it wakes me up when I'm like, okay, I have not, I, I don't feel like eating. That's what happens for me. I stop pretty much eating. I'll eat like an apple and I'll feel so full for the whole day. Uh, and I'm like, okay, something's not right. <laughs> yeah. <And> stomach's <laughs> not in a good way. Not in a good place. Heart is feeling so heavy and anxious. And my mind is just occupied with this one thing and one thing and one thing. And yeah, so that, that those are all warning signs. Thanks for sharing that. Cause I, I feel like it's so important. Like people who have been listening to the show have probably heard me talk about some of, you know, when I know I need to course correct or like slow it down or just add some extra self-care. But I, yeah. I, I feel like it's so important to hear other perspectives as well. So again, I thank you so much for your openness and honesty. Because I think sometimes we just are so on autopilot and I'm sure there are some people listening that are on autopilot. And I think it's, it's really helpful to hear like, ah, oh, I have a nagging pit in my stomach and I have been obsessing about having that terrible conversation with my boss for four days. Ah, maybe I should yeah. pull that front and center again. Yeah. It's like just, you know, finding, and, and everybody has different signs, right? Like your signs might be different than mine. Somebody, it might just be like where they literally are overeating or they're only going for chocolate, you know, or um, it just depends. But, but as long as you can see your signs and then do something to address that, you will be golden. Yeah. And sometimes it's like things that aren't related. I think I can be super focused. And I think to anyone listening, that sounds like, oh my God, I would love that. But sometimes it's to my detriment where like, I don't even realize I have to go pee. Like I'm just so locked on to whatever I'm working on or thinking about that it's not until I hit a pause point that I'm like, oh, oh my God, my leg is cramping because I've had to pee. Yeah. But I, I realized for me, when I realize I need a break is like, I don't register that tired a lot. But what I will notice is I start trying to click on Facebook. Like if I'm on my laptop, I just keep like migrating over to Facebook and it's um, like, uh, yeah. yep. That's totally like, I should just get up and go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, you know, social media is so treacherous, right? Because you go in there thinking you might just be there for a little while and you're going to get news from your friends. And then before you know it, you're thinking, oh my God, my life sucks because look at these people. They're like, they got an award and they got a blah, blah, blah. And they have a kid and they have all these fancy stuff. And before you know it, you are spiraling down. At least that's what used to happen to me. And being an actor, social media is such an important part of your marketing uh, profile, right? But for me lately, I have refrained from being there too much. Um, I will post something random once in a while, but I don't post anything when I book an audition and have a production or, you know, as in I'm filming something. I will post stuff about my show, uh, my comic book. That too, uh, most of the times it lands up like someone else on the team is posting it and that's fine. If I'm doing a speaking engagement, I'll post it so that if people want to come, they have a way to know. But I don't, I'm trying to not post things about, oh, look, I booked a job because I know there's 400 other actors who might have been seen for that same role who didn't get a job. And I don't want them to feel bad that they didn't get it. Um, so I'm also, I'm trying to be more conscious of what my posts do to other people as well, because I've been there. Um, but mostly I'm just not going there. I will very quickly check notifications to see if somebody wrote to me or something, but I am not going, uh, on people's profiles. I mean, okay. Shouldn't say not going ever, but as less as possible. So maybe once in 10 days, I might go stalk somebody like some old college friend, like, what is she up to? Did she have kids? <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I don't put any of my personal life up there. So uh, if they're trying to look at my profile, they won't find anything anyway. So, you know, it's, it's a very weird thing for me about social media. I have started to shy away from it as much as I can. I'm just trying to live my life and trying to find meaning in my own life. I feel you on that. There are days where I wish that I could just delete it all. And then Mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm like, especially where I work for myself from home, you know, decreasingly so as I'm working with more clients and it's a little bit more collaborative and there's water cooler conversation again, you know, but it does feel like nice to be like, oh my God, my, my two old friends from New York City, what are they doing right now? Oh, what's happening? Oh, look, they've got this going on. But yeah, yeah it, it. I feel like I've gotten way more measured. Like sometimes I'm actually just setting a timer. I'm like, you know what? You you deserve, if you can't get them on the phone because they have little kids and a bunch of things going on, Yeah. then okay, like at least you'll be able to, to chime in or cheer them on or, or mm-hmm. commiserate even a little bit. Yeah. But it's like, it's got to be measured because, yeah, I think it, it's really wreaking havoc with all of us. Right. right. It really is. And we all have to recognize it and try to protect ourselves because this is the demon that is self-inflicted upon ourselves. Yeah, because the stories we create, right? Like as someone who writes stories, like it's probably not lost on you that the, the stories we tell ourselves like in that comparison game. Yeah. And, it's, and it's usually like, I forget the the actual research, but it's something like, you know, for every like one positive thing, you know, we tend to have like nine or 10 like negative self thoughts. I know. And that's why to stay away from thoughts, all you have to do is physically be active in something or the other. Now, when I say physically active, I don't mean like you have to be working out, being in the gym or doing yoga or doing something 
that's yeah, the, making that's, art, you know? Make, yeah, like whatever it is, even if it's just writing the thoughts that are coming in your head, like journaling, like you were talking about, you are in, your body is doing something, right? Like you are, your hand is in the process of creating some scribbles, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that like just, that, that just physically being active, doing something, cooking, or I don't know, walking or like cleaning the house or whatever. But if you want to get away from your thoughts, the best way to do that for me has been trying to take action. I mean, if you're waiting for that, you know, oh my God, every time my phone rings, I'm like, did I get that acting job or not? Is it them? Is it, is it my manager? No, no, it's, I start to, okay, I know I'm obsessing over my phone now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a timer for an hour. And for that hour, I will not look at my phone. I can live for an hour without looking at my phone. But what if some important email comes? It's fine. I can address that email in an hour. And so I give myself an hour's blocks, then I'll check it in an hour. Oh, nothing has come. Okay, put a timer again for an hour. Then I'll do two hours, you know, like that. So, and then during that time, I fill it with something else, you know, something that I can do, like cleaning the bathroom, folding the laundry, rearranging my closet. I don't know. <laughs> for me, it's unloading the dishwasher. I feel you. <laughs> but that's a great point, like that we tend to think like the house is on fire and that everything is so urgent when the reality is no one notices if we don't respond for an hour, yeah. right? Like I, I've been trying to take Sundays off mm. and I, I can't say it's perfect. I mean, like the other night when I was watching part of the Grammys, I feel like, ah, this is, I was home alone. So it was sort of like, ah, this is ripe for looking at Twitter and following mm. like the Grammy hashtag because I think sometimes just hearing people's comments while yeah. it's happening is hilarious to me. And I was like, but it was a conscious thing. And, but the rest of the day, it's like, I didn't, I didn't check my email for the most part. I think I, I was waiting for someone to answer me about something. And yeah. I went in and, you know, within 15 minutes I was back out. And it was mm -hmm. like, no one died that I didn't catch mm -hmm. up with them until Monday morning. No yeah. one died. Yeah. It's very important it's, to understand that we can take time because everything is so instant now. We have the world in our hands. We're so connected that we are so afraid of disconnecting even for a moment. And I am included. I'm including myself in that. It's very hard. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, there was a while when I was, uh, I was being very disciplined about putting my phone away at night. And then I started to listen to some of these uh, affirmations on my phone. And now my phone will be next to my bed and it is so tempting to check it. I, like every time I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh, let me just check the phone real quick. There's no reason to do it, but you know. Yeah. I've been loving the iPhone. It's called screen time. And you can set all of these things, mm -hmm. you know, so like, I think I have it set right now that if I try to go into almost all of the apps on my phone between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m., it... Mm -hmm. It, comes, it sort of comes up with like a blank screen that's like, hey, you sure you want to do this? I forget the exact wording. But it's like <laughs> you actually have to hit a couple buttons that says, you know, bypass, sort of bypass this law, yeah. essentially. So it, gives you, it gives you an option to still shy away from getting into the app. That's awesome. Yeah, like it at least makes you like have that pause. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, checking the weather, you know, I'm packing something at 10 o'clock at night to go away somewhere. So I'm like, oh, what's the weather? I need to look, you know, yeah. and it's also, you can like select, like, do you want to just 
be able to access it for one minute to kind of finish up what you were working on? Or is it, you know, do you need 15 minutes? And then it'll keep prompt, it'll lock again. And then you have to really like check in with yourself. Do I really need to be doing this right now? And I found just having that pause has been really powerful. And sometimes I sail right past it, right? Like on Sunday night when I'm just screwing around watching the Grammys. Yeah. But it's sort of like at the same time, it just keeps you from being on autopilot with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally agreed. So Dipti, Mm -hmm. our conversation has gone all (laughs) over the place and back again. Uh-huh. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? To really know that your truth is your truth. No one else's truth can be yours. We, we run around seeking something that we actually already have within us. My truth is my truth and it's an opinion as, lo- as soon as I start to express it, right? It's just an opinion and if we understand that as a society, we'd be in a very hap- like much happier place where we would stop trying to impose our values and our truths on each other and you know, know that inside it is the truth. The moment it starts to come outside, it's an opinion. Um, and go after what you really want in life. It's only one life and we don't know how long it is. You know? So might as well go for your passion and something that makes you happy. And if it doesn't, drink some wine, shed some tears, and move on. <laughs> <laughs> well if said. Wine, then it's okay. Shed some tears, eat some chocolate, and move on. <laughs> eat some chocolate, drink a fancy mocktail. <laughs> Do what okay. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. Whatever that one thing is that you really like to eat or drink, take that. Cry a little. You know, that's a wonderful thing that happened to me. Um, I attended this workshop and I was very sad during the workshop. And the instructor was so amazing. She's like, I want you to grieve. And with keeping that grief intact, I want you to start dancing. And so I started dancing while I was so sad. And it was the most liberating thing I've done. So, you know, find your drink, find your tears, and then go dance it off. (laughs) Oh, Dipti, you are such... A huge, inspiring ball of energy. And I am so grateful for your time and your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me. It was so amazing talking to you. And hopefully all your listeners enjoyed this and all the podcasts that you are ever going to record in the future. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Of course. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Kara again. Thank you so much for joining me and Dipti in this conversation. If you want to learn more about the work that she's doing, you can head over to diptymeta.com. And that's sort of a central hub to hear about all of the different projects that she's got going. And so it's D-I-P-T-I-M-E-H-T-A. Or As always, I try to keep a list of all of the things that we talked about and links to them in the show notes. And you can always find that over at levitalcoursalon.com. L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, and salon, like where you get your hair cut. 
If you dug this podcast and what Dipti is up to out there in the world, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one human and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. You taking those 10 to 20 seconds to share this podcast really helps amplify amplify the voices of other women out in the world. And the people that help amplify my voice are producer Craig Snyder, virtual assistant Darlene Victoria, and I want to also thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the theme song. I know y'all probably have to run, but don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.